friend. Welcome to Job with Julie, hosted by me, Julie Slattery. This podcast is a listener-supported outreach of authentic intimacy, a ministry dedicated to helping you make sense of God and sexuality. So if I say the word gender, what comes to your mind? In today's world, gender is really a loaded term that's becoming a scary one to use in some places. What is gender? Should we view gender as different from biological sex? Is gender seen or felt? How do you teach your children about it? Well, these are some of the questions that I'm going to be talking about with my guests today, John and Sarah Stonetreet. Sarah is the host of Strong Woman Podcast and arm of the Colson Center, where John is the president. In a lot of different ways, both of the Stonetreets advocate within the Christian framework to bring clarity, confidence, and really courage to Christians who are trying to align their lives with the scriptures in a world that's becoming increasingly polarized. This is a conversation I'm sure that will in some ways encourage and make you think, and in other ways it might force you to challenge and wrestle with some of the ideas and belief systems that you hold. So buckle up, grab your coffee, and listen to my interview with John and Sarah Stone Street. Well, John and Sarah, thanks so much for coming on to talk about a real lighthearted topic. <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't waste your time with a lighthearted topic because you two bring so much experience and wisdom and perspectives to some of the culture's most pressing questions. And what we're going to talk about today uh, really represents perhaps the most pressing question of our time, which is all around gender the gender confusion we're experiencing, the transgender movement, but then sort of the deeper roots of how we got here and really how we return to God's design. So thanks for your willingness to dive into this and just offer what the Lord's been showing you. Thanks for having us, Julie. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate your willingness to tackle it. It's not an easy one. It's not one that I think is pleasant, especially for parents or for pastors or leaders. But this is an example, I think, of if you are not talking about this proactively, then all the information is being filled in by other sources mm-hmm. with the people that you care and love about, uh, you know, love. So you just got to, you got to do it. Yeah. You know, there's no way around it. You just got to go through it. Mm-hmm. And I will mention, we've had several conversations over the last couple of years on this topic from everywhere from Mark Yarhouse's psychological expertise to... Nancy Piercy and others who are speaking in and sharing testimonies. So this isn't the first go around, but it is one of those topics that I feel like we need to address again and again because it's so complex. And your specialty is really addressing this from a theological and cultural issue. So let me just start there. What does it say about our Western culture that we're even asking questions like, what does it mean to be male or female and accepting the fact that perhaps some of us are not either? You know, I, I think Carl Truman, uh, in the opening of his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, gets at, at the heart of, I think, the question that you're you're asking. And he said, you know, the question we need to ask ourselves, he said, is not so much how is it possible for a man to say, you know, I was trapped in the wrong body. Because, you know, there's been people that have said that, you know, here and there throughout history. But the question is, how is it now that we're at a place where when someone says that, they're not immediately considered wrong and probably uh, with, with some sort of mental, you know, 
condition, what the even the American Psychological Association in recent history called a, you know a dysphoria and marked as a mental illness. But we actually accept what he says as if it's true. And then start start changing almost every aspect of our society around that idea. Because a man says this uh, primarily, then we tell, you know, teenage girls that they're born into the wrong body and we change education and we start, you know, changing private spaces and laws and all kinds of other aspects and what it means to be a inclusive and healthy business and even church. So in other words, the question is one of how did this become a normal idea, not just how did it become an idea? You're right, John. I did have a conversation with Carl about his book, and we'll link to that because he he gets into some of the threads of just where we've been in the last hundred years or so and how we got to this point. I'd love for you just to reflect even from a spiritual aspect. I know you know, Chuck Colson's heart and a lot of what you all do at the Colson Center is really looking at Western culture in the light of theology. And uh, when I read passages like Romans 1 or 1 Timothy, and they describe the times that we'll be living in, it's almost, well, it's true. Like this isn't even mentioned. You know, everything else we see in our society is mentioned in terms of perversion and greed and selfishness and pride and rebellion. But there's nothing about, uh, we won't even know if we're male or female. Um, So what does that say even from a progressive theological standpoint in terms of where we are? Yeah, there's a history here, and it has to do with denying creation and created norms. I think almost the entire game right now is whether there are any givens to the world that we experience, including to ourselves, or whether everything is socially constructed. Is there anything like gravity or is everything a speed limit? You know, gravity is something you can rename or deny or reject or, you know, shout at, but you're still going to step off the roof and hit the ground. Speed limits are things that we uh, negotiate, right? We negotiate based on social conditions. And what's happened is, is we're a society that thinks that everything is up for grabs. Everything can be socially reconditioned. And that's being done largely now along the lines of this kind of Marxist class distinction of oppressed and oppressor. And so all these things that were once norms actually have to be rethought because all norms are, in fact, oppressive. Theologically, that is a reflection of denying that there are givens and denying that there are givens. Romans 1 says, quickly shifts from denying the moral givens to denying the fact that there's anyone giving anything and therefore denying the givens of reality. Does that make sense? So we deny that there are givens to right and wrong. The only way to do that is to reject the idea of a creator that gives those norms about right and wrong. And then pretty soon you're like, oh, well, then there's not really any givens to reality itself. That's taken the form, I think, in recent decades, most especially to the rejection of the givenness of the human body. So we separate the physical aspects of who we are and the emotional aspects and mental aspects of who we are. And somehow there's been this reversal. It used to be, well, look, the the realities of the body are the realities of reality. And so we can't really reject those. We have to align our thinking. That's what's malleable. That's what needs to be conditioned and nurtured and taught. You know, that's the whole idea of education, leading a student out of their ignorance into, you know, something that is true. So you realign our thoughts, our feelings with reality. And now 
all of that's been reversed. The body is seen as a construction. It's not seen as any given. And, you know, at the heart of this, I think, is this idea that what is fixed and not changeable is our emotions, our what we feel, what we want, really. It's this mix of the emotion and the will. And throughout history, all the great thinkers, and Sarah knows this way better than I do, uh, having practiced this in education with our own kids, but all the great educators in history believe that you needed to align one's inner life with reality. That's just what education is. And now we've got this thing where, you know, our bodies are completely changeable and malleable. Maybe even they're wrong and they're in in the way of who we really are. And the thing that I can't change is what I feel. It's a complete upside down turn, which by the way, Romans 1 talks about that you reject the moral norms, then you reject the creation and you reject the creator. And I always go back, you know, to the way that the Bible describes this. You're right. It it doesn't always go down as far as we've gotten today, at least in the area of denying observable realities, but it does go pretty far into the human capacity to rationalize complete evil behavior. And, you know, we're having these conversations right now around Israel and Hamas about just war. I mean, that didn't exist throughout most war throughout history. So the Bible was pretty honest about how wretched people can be, how brutal dictators and oppression can be, and then imposes kind of a norm on Israel and so on. So our kind of, I guess, journey into the moral abyss is just in a different direction, but it's gone pretty far. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's There's nothing really new. It's just like a new flavor. And one of the things I think we have to do as Christians is step back and say, okay, what is the human condition here? How is it displaying itself? Because it's not new. Reality is still reality, and our fallenness still tends to tilt towards the wrong direction, towards making ourselves the ones in control and rejecting authority. But it also, in all this brokenness, reveals still that transcendent longing. I think, like for example, with the gender confusion, there's still this I don't know. One thing I think of is that there's this longing still in this knowing that something is wrong with the way we are and wanting to mend that. But then, of course, what the enemy offers us is this stunted making new. We should want to be a new creation, but we don't conjure that up ourselves. That's Christ who does that in us. So even though it's a new flavor, We can kind of zoom out again and like G.K. Chesterton calls it the democracy of the dead. Look to those people who have gone before because they've fought the lies of their culture during their time. And so we have that opportunity now to sort through that, which is why I love conversations like this, because it's okay to not know. I want to say to the parents out there in all the confusion that is swirling around us, it's okay to not know right away. But the not knowing should inspire us to learn more and to dive into those conversations deeper. Mm-hmm. John, I want to pick up on a word that you used a minute ago. You used the word evil in describing what's happening with gender. And boy, that's a fighting word right there. So as soon as maybe some people heard that, they're like, okay, evil? like." First of all, describe why we, you would use that word evil. And then second of all, I'd love for you to talk even pastorally towards, you know, there are people that are trapped in this evil. And 
where is that balance of calling something sin and evil while also holding with compassion the experience of what that's like for an individual or a family who's walking through it? Yeah. You know, when evil becomes normal, it's really hard to call it that without offending a lot of people because you're talking about people who are well-meaning and maybe just, you know, deceived. They don't have any sort of kind of larger agenda or larger goal. But then you take a step back and you realize what's happening with this as a whole movement is a targeting particularly of children. And that's part of the whole history of the sexual revolution from the beginning to the end. It's all the harms of the sexual revolution. First of all, separating people from the inherent moral nature of sexual behavior to now and separating people from the inherent givenness of moral, of sexual design. Either one of those things um, are, are ideas that go against the grain of the universe and therefore are going to have consequences. And the consequences have played themselves most directly against children. And that's just an unavoidable fact. I mean, it, that doesn't start with, uh, can, you know, drag queen story hour teaching kids to question the goodness of their own bodies. That's an evil thing to do. I appreciate the work of uh, some folks who have talked about kind of the importance of defending children, Katie Faust, uh, Emily Gowett at Heritage. And, and, they, and they articulate it this way, that we need to care about children's hearts and minds, their bodies, and their most important relationships. Those are three things that um, we are responsible for in the lives of children. If you go I back- I feel like you said about five things, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, li- uh, there are hearts and minds. That's one thing. They're, they're, oh, okay. They're you're you're coupling minds. them? Okay. I'm coupling All them. Right. That would make four. Um, and hearts and minds, <laughs> their bodies, and their most essential relationships. And I, I think you can actually look through history and see where pagan ideas always attack one of those, you know, three three areas of uh, children, and that Christians have always felt it necessary to stand up and to defend children. Like that's been part of our mission in the world. Jesus, of course, had a lot to say about that with millstones and such. So I think that that that's when I say evil, I think that's the most tangible expression of it. It is wrong to target children. It's wrong. It's evil. And bad ideas have victims, as we often say around the Colson Center. And the victims of the sexual revolution have disproportionately been women, and, but especially children. There's always this, the kids will be fine, as if the desires and wants of the adults and even the confusions that aren't intended to be evil. You know, I get what you're saying in terms of what about people who feel trapped in this? I'm not saying that there's an intention, but, you know, evil is a, is a reality of a world that was created good and that's fallen. And, you know, Augustine talked about that, you know, evil isn't a thing. Evil is a parasite. It's a twisting. It's a, a misdirection of the purposes of God's creation. And that's why sex is good, but homosex is not. It's a twisting of what the design and the purpose is. And every stage of the sexual revolution has taken a, a givenness of God's creation and then twisted it, twisted it away from his purposes. And that's going to have victims. And those victims, whether it's no fault divorce, whether it's, you know, the contraception mentality and the abortion, you know, the rethinking of sexual identity and gender identity and sexual orientation, even the invention of these categories to justify these ideas that we have, all this disproportionately affects, affects children. So when I, when I think pastorally, I know what you're, first of all, I'm not a pastor and there's a good reason for that. Sarah knows the good reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> there's reasons that I'm not that, um, 
But when I think about that, I I have to think about it in two ways. You do have to think pastorally about those who struggle, those who feel caught in this and realize that sometimes people are victims of their own bad ideas. And it's never, never less than cruel to tell someone who's not okay that they are okay. And I think the path of least resistance pastorally for a lot of churches has been some form of affirmation and saying that this fallen condition is actually your created condition. That's not theologically accurate and it's not kind. Yeah. But there's also, and this is the piece I think whenever people ask me about, in fact, they, you know, we hear this from the sort of content we put out at the Colson Center. We try not to be ranting, raving lunatics or, you know, we have a, stra- a, a motto that says, you know, outrage is not a strategy. We don't just get mad and yell at the culture. But I do think that pastorally, that when people ask us, why aren't you more pastoral on this issues? That's what they're they're saying is why do you, you know, point out all these these harms and evils and things like that? I'm like, well, because pastorally, pastors have a responsibility to families, not just to individuals who are struggling, but to followers of Jesus everywhere. Yeah. Look, I, I didn't plan to have half the conversations Sarah and I have had with our kids. Sure. Right. It wasn't, I had no idea we were going to talk about, you know, same sex marriage when our kids were seven. That's the the cultural moment we're in made that decision for us. Mm-hmm. I need help to do that. Mm-hmm. Parents need help to do that. Why that has to be a pastoral concern mm-hmm. for for folks for churches as well. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you both. You are in the middle of raising children uh, all the way from six years old to college age. How are you navigating these waters at your own dinner table and helping your kids sort through what they're growing up in? Um, I would say, one, there's several things that come to mind. One is that we see ourselves as learners, and we're constantly trying to grow deeper in our understanding of God's world and God's reality, and then just being willing to share that with the kids, like, hey, I'm reading this book, and you know, inviting them into kind of what I'm learning, but also... One thing, John's really quick on his feet, and I'm not as much. And that's that's okay. I, th- I love that. And often I, I want to do the default and just be like, hey, John, answer that. But because I just love his answers and I want to take notes. But I also want to learn myself. I want to be able to articulate this for the kids as well, because this is important to both of us. And it takes me a little bit longer. And so I'm saying that and being vulnerable because I know so many of your listeners are in the same boat as me. Like, I don't know the right answer right away, but that is okay. And I, and I will tell my kids, great question. I don't know, but I do know where to go to learn more. So either now, now that they're older, we can do it together. We can go together to learn more about something through reading a book together. Or I'll say, hang on, let me talk to a trusted person. Let's involve dad in the conversation. Let's look at what scripture has to say. But it, uh, what I want to emphasize is I don't know all the answers right away. And my kids know that, and that's okay. Because it doesn't shake us because we are so confident in the truth. I'm confident that just because I don't know the answer right away doesn't mean there's not an answer. And my kids see that. And so I think that's one thing that that is good. Also, John and I lead the youth group at our church. And so we have all kinds of conversations with the youth group because at the beginning of our Sunday school time, John will always ask him, okay, what did you see? What did you hear this week? 
that you'd like to discuss. And we have had the gamut. And one reason I thought I loved the way John put this to the kids. He said, everything is fair game during this time where we're asking you this, because we want you to see that the Christian faith has to do with everything. And if we leave some conversations out of our church conversations, then it gives the impression that the church doesn't have anything to say about it, and it does. So those are just a couple of things that come to mind. How about you, John? Well, I think Sarah's spectacular at involving our kids in her learning as part of the journey. So they see it. And I I think it's communicated a number of things to them. Number one is that there is a good and true and beautiful to pursue. And that's really important because when it comes to a lot of these moral issues, it's really easy. And I'd say probably it's been the experience of some of us that we deal the church deals with all these issues with a big no and never a yes with a big, here's what we don't believe, or here's what we reject, never why. And what is this all about? And when you are curious and you invite your kids along that journey to curiosity, then they start to care about what's good. And they start to believe that truth is knowable. And they start to think that learning is something that God created us to be and to do. And that's huge. Think about that. The fundamental lie in our culture is that what it means to be human is to be yourself and to express, to look inside. It's a complete inward turn. I'm sure that's what you and Carl Truman talked about. And the idea that really God created us in his image. And part of that is that we can actually know what he has chosen to reveal in the world around immediately turns us outward. It's a fundamental shift, right? You're fundamentally countering the most damaging and destructive narrative that exist in our culture right now. And I think Sarah does this just better than anybody that I know, honestly. She just invites them on this journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we don't let opportunities pass. You know, I, I joke that the um, the most hate mail I ever got on any Breakpoint commentary ever was about yeah. the real life Beauty and the Beast. Do you remember that? It was the real life movie. Mm-hmm. You, you know, yeah. Disney did uh-huh. all those real life movies. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. And, and this is an example of this point. First of all, the Disney marketing campaign is the most successful marketing campaign in the history of the world. And our girls were just the right age that everything in our house was dominated, you know, with a Disney princess somewhere on it. And, you know, the first one comes out at Cinderella. It's great. It's actually better than the cartoon. Mm-hmm. It's all about, you know, it's a wonderful message to kids, to, especially you might to, get hate mail about that too. to young women. I thought the real life Cinderella was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Like it was I so did too, good. But people are so, you know, they hold They're so addicted tightly to, to the to cartoon. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it was so much more thoughtful and anyway. So, but then they marketed Beauty and the Beast and everyone's super excited about it. And then it's Emma Watson. You kidding me? Like, this is too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And then a month out, do you remember what happened? They said, there's going to be a gay moment. Yep. And what do you do? Mm-hmm. We thought about it and talked about it. I think there's three options. One is you don't go. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of parents chose that. And I think that's completely valid. The other one is that you go and you hope that they don't notice. Mm-hmm. And frankly- Because well, it was so subtle. It was, it was really subtle. And frankly- if you took your young kids, they wouldn't have noticed. Our approach was the third approach was we're going to take them mainly because it was, we had talked about it. They, it was a teaching moment and the, all of their friends, you know, were really excited about it and we wanted them to have an understanding and insight to that. But we didn't let that moment go unnoticed. We pointed it out Mm -hmm. because culture's most powerful in the hearts and minds of our kids, not where it's the loudest, but where it's just normalizes. Mm -hmm. 
And that's critical. We have got to have a constant conversation pointing out this is not normal. This is not normal. This is not normal. This is not normal. And so we hit all this stuff head on. And I don't want, I mean, look, it was a gay moment in a Disney movie. It was irrelevant. But, you know, three weeks later, we were on a flight and there was a gay moment when we, you know, were sitting on a plane. Mm -hmm. So I don't want them to think that's normal either. Right. right? So, but also I want them to know how how to react to it. So I, I think Sarah's invitation to our kids to learn together and to point them to what's true and good. And then confronting the cultural moments is really important. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing that I'll say, and I think Sarah does a great job of this as well, and we try together, is we don't take anything for granted. We don't take any knowledge for granted. You know, and what I mean by that is we used to live in a culture in which a lot of the norms were just embedded. Even if people were would say crazy things, you still had a lot of different forces that fundamentally agreed with you know you on what is good behavior and mm-hmm. you know that that there's a difference between boys and girls and things like that i just don't think you can take any of that for granted you know there's a there's a story from the history of the nfl where vince lombardi starts the next football season after losing in the nfc championship game by holding a football in front of his professional football players and going gentlemen this is a football and that's like we got i just feel like we got to do that all the time yeah. gentlemen you know, mm-hmm. and not and not truth. just for children, but I think even in church culture, like pastors oh, can't assume anything, teachers can't assume. We do that on break. Yeah. We don't use words without defining them, right. because we don't assume shared knowledge. Hey, friend! I just want to let you know that if you listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts. That stream is closing at the end of this month. If you usually listen to Google Podcasts, don't worry. Our episodes will still be available on YouTube and Spotify. Or if you're an iPhone user, you can find us on the Apple Podcasts as well. All right, back to my interview with the Stone Streets. John, one of the tactics of addressing this is kind of what you all have talked about, that we have to go back to conforming our understanding of the world to physical reality, to the revealed creation. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly something we could spend hours talking about. And as we've mentioned, there are some great resources to follow up on. The second part of this conversation, which I'd love to spend the rest of our time discussing, is the fact that even apart from the gender non-binary and the transgender conversation, there's a lot of noise today about gender in general. Like, for example, several months ago, the Barbie movie, which was interesting because really like painted these very culturally, stereotypically representative of male and female. So they're even acknowledging that there is a male and female and there is a binary, which is interesting in today's cultural moment. But I think one of the areas that makes this more confusing is, okay, is there an essence to gender apart from just our body or is it just our body? So in other words, do I only look at my biology and say, okay, I'm a woman or is there a deeper discipleship of even asking further questions? What does it mean then for me to live and work towards becoming a godly woman? And how do we talk about the essence of male and female without getting into some of the traditional stereotypes that make people feel very limited by that. 
So I know that that's yeah. a big question, but I'd love to spend some time unpacking that with you too. Well, Sarah has also thoughts about the Barbie movie. <laughs> I, do but yeah. <laughs> I just think, you know, look, it's ironic in a tragic sort of way that, you know, we spent the last 30 or 40 years decrying harmful gender stereotypes. And now we can define reality based on them. You know, we know a kid's born in the wrong body if he violates one of the stereotypes. It's completely backwards. It's inconsistent. There's nothing literally logical in the ideology of this movement, these ideas, and that includes the medical professionals who are advancing them either for profit or for whatever else. And I think it's okay to point that out. And I think we need more people who are willing to do it. Right now, I think the church is largely being outspoken on this. Sorry, I don't mean outspoken in a good way. I mean, other people are are outspeaking us. There's a whole group of people who don't agree with us on almost anything who are looking at this going, this is child abuse, this is wrong, you know? Right. And it's okay to say that out loud. No, it's it's very I true. Think, but I think partly because, and this is why our whole ministry exists, we don't know what to say. We yeah. can say, I believe it's wrong. I believe God created male and female. It's clear. It's right there in the Bible. But we don't know how to go further than that in e- even defining what is the purpose well, of male and female and where do stereotypes end in the essence of why God cares about this kind of begin. I mean, I I understand what you're saying. And I guess that's true. I think that when it gets to the difference, for example, Sarah and I talk a lot about this between uh, roles of men and women versus the design of men and women. That's where it gets a little Mm -hmm. more complicated, I think. And I certainly is true that there's a history of misogyny in the church, certain aspects of the church. And that a lot of the ideology that has emerged is at some level, at least in reaction, at least to kind of cultural norms that shouldn't have been norm, norms. And that was the expression of the fall in, in that time and that place. But I also think we have an awful lot to say. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have the Genesis narrative. The Genesis narrative is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The Genesis narrative on the difference between men and women and why God created men and women gets to the heart of what T.S. Eliot, I think, instructed us wisely, and maybe this is one way at least to answer your question, is that Eliot has this uh, passage in a, a piece he did on education where he says, you know, before we know what someone, what should do with something, we should know what something is for. And he, basically he's saying, you know, when education is reduced, what are you going to do with it? You're missing the first question, which is what are people for? And before we reduce the conversation about roles and identity as men and women down to what is it okay for women to do? And what is it okay for men to do? We need to first ask what men is for, mm-hmm. what men are for and what women are for. And no one has an answer to that like the Genesis narrative. Unfortunately, we've spent about 70 years fighting over how old the earth is and not actually looking at what the Bible actually says about how God created. Genesis 2 is rich. And Jesus points back to this. He's asked the question about divorce. Is it okay to do this with marriage? And he points back and says, this is what marriage is for. The fact that we look at, you know, Genesis 2 and say, oh, yeah, there's two stories here. You know, Eve comes out of Adam's rib and then Adam names the animals as if they're not the same. They're the same story. And together they tell us what humans are for, male and female. That's one thing we have to say. Another thing we have to say is the word gender is loaded. The word gender needs to be either discarded or carefully, carefully clarified because gender takes the differences of men and women away from the body and puts them all into social expression. Mm -hmm. You can see this most clearly 
with the gender unicorn. Have you ever seen the gender unicorn? Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? But if it's you a teaching it, tool. Yeah. Oh, it's bizarre. I mean, it. I hate to tell people about it because maybe they'll find it and they'll lose hope in humanity. But they should lose hope in the educational system yeah. that this is literally what's being talked about. Mm-hmm. Looking at four different spectrums. Everything's on a spectrum, including the physical body, about what makes one male and female. And in other words, and three of them are all social representations or social expectations that are completely disconnected to the fact that in our chromosomes and our hormones, in our reproductive organs and our external genitalia, there's something to men and there's something to women. Mm -hmm. So I think Christians have largely bought into this divorce from the human body I think we owe our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters so much on this mm-hmm. because the theology of the body is one of the great gifts yep. uh, that we have. I'm not Roman Catholic for all kinds of reasons, uh, theologically, but they have taken the Genesis 2, but John Paul II took that seriously mm-hmm. and talked about, because we will say things like this, which reinforces the myth of gender ideology, which says, you know, we need to get past the body and talk about what it really means to be a man and a woman. Yeah. No, 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 no. Our body is what it means to be a man and a woman. It's not all of it, but it's not less than Yes. Do you feel like there's room to go beyond that? Or do you think it's just accept your biology? I think in terms of discipleship in the family and in the church, of how do we disciple male and female in terms of, and I don't like the word roles either. I think it's, there's a deeper essence uh, that has a lot of scope for variety in it beyond roles. But I think if we just say it's just the body and we don't give any practical application to what, as a godly woman, how do I become more of what God calls me to be? Or as a young man, like how do we disciple that? Yeah. Look, I'm not saying, let me just be really clear that we are just our bodies. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that our cultural and theological and discipleship conversations in the church tend to happen about what it means to be a godly man or a godly woman as if we don't have yeah. bodies. Mm-hmm. And that's a reflection of cultural norms. We are not just our bodies. We are not less than our bodies. So this is why it's so important to talk about the difference between roles, which are cultural applications of who we are to a particular moment, and the design, which is physical. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, physical, breathed in him the breath of life, spiritual, and man became a living soul. And then you have the formation of woman in which Adam looks and goes, finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, where he recognized both similarity and difference, just, you know, the sameness and difference right there. This is creation. This is what God chose to tell us about the creation story. And then we go on and throughout all kinds of narratives, there's teaching on what it means to be made in the image of God and what it means to you know, be a creature who lives in recognition of the existence of God and his sovereignty and his supremacy and what it means to live in nations and what it means to live in families and what it means to live in that. And all of these are a reflection or an outworking of you know, who we are, physical and spiritual, made in the image and likeness of God. So for example, I think the common way that marriage counseling is done today we get husbands and wives together and or potential spouses together and say, hey, do you guys, what about having babies? You guys, how many children do you guys want? Do you agree on that? There's never any conversation whatsoever about the inherent fundamental connection between sex, marriage, and procreation, which is literally the reason mm-hmm. that God said in Genesis 2 that something before the fall, 
Some part of his creation was not good. You can't get away from that in the text, especially when you see how the text plays out in this four-chapter creation, fall, redemption, restoration. To be redeemed and restored as a human is not to be something different than what you were created. It's to be fully human. It's to be fully returned and enhanced into your creation. So I think there's such a theological blind spot here that's so impactful. And look, I get it. We're reacting against a history in which women were fundamentally just reduced down to just their bodies or their procreative usefulness or whatever. And that's sinful and it's awful and it's dehumanizing. And we've said things like, well, that's not women's work. When It made no sense whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. There can't be a dis- separation from reality or the creation narrative and how we talk about this. I know I know, we've done a whole lot of theory here and not a lot of practical, mm-hmm. so I'm going to let Sarah give you all the practicals. <laughs> no, I, I just think it's really important. I just think we don't realize how brainwashed we are into gender ideology, into its history. Yeah. I got that from Abigail Favalli's book, The Genesis of Gender. She walks through this history in such a powerful way. I think you know the insights that come out of that, I just kept going back going, we're completely confused. Mm-hmm. We're completely confused about this. Mm-hmm. Well, I loved the Barbie movie because <laughs> <laughs> we're, to go we're back going to that. from the genesis of gender to the Barbie movie. I we need both, we right? But stay with <laughs> yes. me. Stay with me because I'm getting to that that he's talking about. But I really did like the Barbie movie. And people were like, it just pitted men and women against each other. Of course it did, because the world doesn't offer a better story, you know, without this beautiful design that we can step back and look at Genesis and say, whoa, these differences are actually part of the design. They're not something to be competitive about. There's something that highlights what we're for, and that is to give and receive love. And that's within marriage, but it's also our calling as humans in relationship to give and receive love from God, who that is what we're created from, is the giving and receiving of love from God. And then to turn around and in right order, understand our relationships as that, as the giving and receiving of love. And so our differences, when God creates difference in Genesis, it's for harmony and for a bigger reason, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so I watched the Barbie movie and I thought, ah, I enjoyed it because it brought out some big things to discuss. And so I talked about it with my girls. I talked with my girlfriends. And one of the big things is that the only option is a power struggle. Mm-hmm. It's either men are, are in charge or women are in charge. And honey, we're tired of being <laughs> not in charge and we're taking over. And that's so stunted and just bland, I think. And instead of being curious about others, being curious about the mystery of personality, and our bodies are important because they're sacramental in the way that they reveal the person. They reveal who we are Mm -hmm. and they're our way of acting in the world. So without our bodies, we would not be discoverable. (laughs) And so they're very much connected. And I just think that as Christians, I get excited because This whole conversation about identity and the confusion that the enemy is sneaking in and, you know, it it really is a screw tape kind of sneak in, you know, screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. John likes to say the Satan is not going to hide behind the corner and just pop out and be like, boo, Mm -hmm. you know. But what he does is he takes these little subtle things, these assumed ideas that just get adopted 
And they grow feet and legs and hands and grab onto us and we don't even realize it because we haven't stopped to think about some of these big questions. Mm -hmm. So as Christians, we have a real opportunity to do the hard work, to stop and think about this and to zoom out and to say, okay, what are men and women for? Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, the big story is that it's beautiful and that it's an invitation to know God more. It is an invitation to participate with Him in what He started in the beginning with creation, with forming and filling the earth. And then He says, hey, you guys, I want you to do this with me. And I don't know why He does that. I don't know why when Christ comes and starts the whole new creation, starts this reconciliation He chooses not to just make it happen with us in the stands going, yay, Jesus. He says, you are now part of this new calling, and that is to reconcile. And so it makes me think about Christopher West's, um, one of his quotes in that book, um, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. He says, the enemy doesn't have his own clay but he takes what the good clay that God created. I'm I'm probably saying this wrong, but mm-hmm. it's the main mm, idea. Yeah. He takes the good clay that God created and he twists it and distorts it. Right. And then our job as reconcilers is to untwist and undistort. And of course, that has to start in our own hearts, mm. the untwisting and undistorting, which has to start with repentance, which is a beautiful gift because we are assured forgiveness by our Savior. So then we start on that journey and we're able to invite the people around us. Like, this is the way of flourishing. This is a beautiful story that you're invited into. And we know that it's the way of flourishing for our neighbors, whether they believe it or not, because we know this is, we are designed by a designer so there is a way to live. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And so much of the emphasis, even in our conversation, is about understanding truth and calling out lies and going back to the source of truth and digging into scripture. And I know the application comes out of that. But I do want just to take a few minutes and like just make this really practical. So you have three sons, or you have three daughters and a son. So even in the raising of your children, what do you find yourself saying about being a woman? You know, obviously with three daughters, you're going to have three very different personalities and and likes and dislikes uh, and with your son. But what is the essence? Like we have three sons, you know, what would we, we say to our sons about this is what men do without being stereotypical or this is what this is if the perp- if we go back to Genesis and looking at what it's for, what's male and female for, it really is in the big picture to reveal God to us, to reveal his nature, to reveal the, the idea that we are made for intimacy and connection and giving and receiving love. But is there a nuance of how we walk that out uniquely as male and female? You know, I, I think there is, but there's also before that what it means to be human. And the, as Sarah's pointing out, like this is what God created humans to do. Now he created men and women in order for humans to be human, right? Which is why he said that it wasn't good that Adam was alone because he couldn't accomplish what God wanted him to. But fundamentally, Adam was supposed to take care of God's world and to take care of God's world in such a way that would be enjoyable, that would be meaningful, and that would also point the rest of creation to him. That's, you know, we've kind of summed that up 
in the word stewardship. And so that's one of the first practicalities is before we say, well, this is how should you know men live and how should women live is how, what should humans do? The lie of authenticity uh, being everything mm-hmm. or self-expression being the meaning of life. That's the first thing I think you've got to do. Yeah. And that God in his kindness has made the world knowable. And so you actually have a calling right now. This is your job to learn and to know. And it's not to pass that test. It's to be a good steward of the sort of mind that God gave you. And now that's true whether you're talking about boys or girls. That's true whether you're talking about a kid who has certain propensities in math, which none of our kids did, or one of them does, and you know, or what or creativity. You know, you're supposed to make things better. You're supposed to leave things better than you found it. And so that's the sort of thing we practically talk about with our kids a lot, although leaving things better hasn't translated to their rooms yet. So, <laughs> or the dishes. <laughs> or the dishes, yeah. No, that's true. Well, we haven't quite figured that out. Can I, I jump in and sure. add to what you're saying? Um, the other thing that I was talking with Abigail Favalli. Sorry, we've talked a lot about Abigail Favalli. If you haven't had her on your show, you All should. Right. I, mean, I made a note. <laughs> it's going to The Genesis happen. of Gender. Yeah. Julie, you will love the book. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to her about this, and this is something I'm growing in understanding of, but yeah, when you get down to that nitty gritty, like what distinguishes men and women? And I was telling her how it always kind of just sits wrong with me when I'm like, well, women are nurturing and men are this. And it's like, but men are nurturing too. And and it really struck me one day when um, our we had a grief this summer with, um, in our family and our girls were really struggling with it. And there were several days of just heaviness and heartache and um, crying and So I was hugging them one day and comforting them. And John walked in the room and I said, I think they just need a dad hug right now. And so, of course, John comes in and it's just different. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. But it's still nurturing. It's just Mm -hmm. different. And I'm telling Abigail this story and she goes, it's because she brought up this metaphor. She said, think of it like this. You've got two woodwinds, an oboe and a clarinet. They both play the same note, but they're going to sound different because their structure is different. And so I think a lot of it, that really resonated with me. Like John and I are both called to steward God's creation. We're both called to this time and place and this cultural moment. We're both called to use the giftings God's given us to speak to that beauty and brokenness around us, which starts in our family. And in our own hearts, we're both called to that. But the way that we walk that out will just look different Mm -hmm. because he is male and I am female and we're unique persons. It will just look different. And I think that's true because when you start, you know, all the stories that we tell on the Strong Women podcast really display that. There's so many unique differences between even just woman to woman. I mean, you think about you and I, Julie, we're in different seasons. We have different giftings. We have different things that God's put right in front of us. But at the core, we're female. We're walking this out in a feminine way that's going to even look different from you know, person to person. I don't know. Yeah. What is no, that a satisfying I, answer I li- to me I like that, that resonates? in some ways because it's not prescriptive. It's really, mm-hmm. you know, let, let the Holy Spirit play through you. You know, let the Holy Spirit play through you, whether you've got a logical personality or or an emotional personality, like that doesn't define your femininity or masculinity. Right. If we have a different structure and even our, our DNA, our brain is different, 
it's going to come out differently. So in some ways, it's very freeing. (laughs) So Yeah, yeah. it is. I even think about you and I had a conversation recently, and you said your husband is more of the process out loud kind of person, Mm -hmm. and you're not. Mm -hmm. You're more reserved. And I laughed. I said, that's completely opposite in our marriage. I asked John, how was your day? And he's like, I don't even remember what happened five minutes ago. You know, it kind of scares him. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but me, you know, he asked me and I'm like, okay, sit down and buckle up because I'm going to tell you some things. But you know, that even is different in marriage to marriage. Mm And so this structure, it's the way we live in the world, It's, but it is still going to look different because God in His great creativity created us different, and that's exciting. It's mm-hmm. so fun to discover that. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like this whole conversation has been exciting and fun to discover, so thank you. I had very few notes of where we would go because I just knew that uh, the way the conversation would unfold would be a learning experience for me and I'm sure it has been for everyone listening so thank you yeah thank you for having us. us my hope is that what you heard serves as a jumping off point for you as you think about what the Bible says about gender and sexuality how you figure out how to walk that in your own life in your relationships in your work and in your parenting If you'd like to hear more from John and Sarah, we've included links to the Strong Women podcast and the Colson Center website. The Colson Center also recently launched an initiative called the Identity Project. And the goal of the Identity Project is to create a place for people to seek and find clarity on issues about identity and sexuality. We've linked to that in our show notes as well. Well, I know this is a broad topic, but I want to encourage you to go deeper and don't be afraid to wrestle with it. That's what we were doing in this conversation. Well, that's all I have for you today. Next week, you will hear my interview with Chase Rapagol, who is the author of the book, The Five Masculine Instincts, where he explains some of the common inclinations of men that are found in scripture. So we'll continue to wrestle with some of this gender conversation in that interview as well. It's an interesting and eye-opening conversation that you're not going to want to miss. So I look forward to seeing you then. Mm -hmm.